If you have your Bibles, we are looking at 1 Kings 9 tonight, and I'll begin with a movie that maybe you've watched, I don't know, called The Blind Side. Have you watched that movie? It's actually a great movie. Um, We watched it when it came out, I don't know how many years ago, but that's been in the news, and that's why I begin with the theme of blindsided. The movie is supposed to be based on a true story, isn't it? The Tui family, Sean and Leanne Tui, they adopted this homeless kid named Michael Orr. And of course, in the movie, they are cast as a Christian family, and they are also a fairly wealthy family. They gave Michael an excellent education, and he excelled not only in school, but in sports, in particular, football. When he graduated from high school, he went to Ole Miss to play football, and then he was eventually drafted into the NFL by the Baltimore Ravens. What is interesting about that story is this week we learned that Michael Orr claims he was never adopted, that the people he thought had become his parents had simply asked him to sign papers of a conservatorship. And when the movie came out, when they made the story of his life, he didn't get any money. Apparently, the parents, whoever they were, we don't know the real or the real twoies is what I'm getting at. They got a lot of money. And again, he's a very wealthy man, professing Christians. What happened? Which version of the twoies is the real one? And we're starting to ask that question about Solomon the closer we get to chapter 11. Right? At what point did something break in his life? I mean, everything we've been thinking about tonight, about obedience, right? Solomon, I wish he would have learned that song about O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. I mean, he does well for quite some time, but there are going to be questions, not about the first nine verses, that's all clear. But when we come to verses 10 to follow and following, there are going to be some things that, maybe questions that start to creep into our minds about what is going on in the life of King Solomon. God appeared a second time to Solomon, and that is what the first nine verses are about. And this happened after the dedication of the temple was completed. Some people believe that God appeared to Solomon right after that great prayer that we looked at last time. And again, there's so much in that prayer that we skipped over that we could go back to in chapter 8. The dedication of the temple was a grand event, wasn't it? The glory of God filled the temple on that particular occasion when the Holy of Holies was filled with the cloud of the glory of God. Second Chronicles, in the parallel text, tells us that the Lord, he later sent down fire to consume the sacrifices that had been placed on the altar. Both of those indicate that God accepted the temple dedication and the sacrifices. It's stamped with divine approval. That much is clear when we looked at that chapter. But as we come to our text tonight, the first question that I'd like us to consider is, why did God appear a second time? And we, we notice this in the first three verses. Okay? Now, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why I asked that question is because after we get through the whole chapter, there is nothing new in the revelation that God gives to Solomon. Right? There's nothing new in terms of content of revelation of what God said to Solomon. In fact, let's look at verses 1 through 3. We, we begin and it says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time 
as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will ever be there for all time. All of that is positive, isn't it? It's very positive. It reminds us of the very first time God appeared to Solomon back in chapter 3. That was another beautiful moment. Solomon, God appeared to him, and that is so encouraging, right, when we consider that. In verse 5 of chapter 3, God said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want to want me to give you. I mean, it's almost like a blank check, isn't it? And out of all the things that Solomon could have asked for, he asked God for wisdom and discernment to know how to be a godly and a righteous king, to know right and wrong when he's, when he's leading God's people. And God, of course, was so pleased with that request that he responded by saying, I'm going to give you great wisdom. And God even promises to bestow great wealth upon Solomon. And now we come to chapter 9, and we are about at least 24 years into the reign of King Solomon. He is no longer a young king that doesn't have any discernment. Solomon has been granted by God enormous success. The nation has prospered beyond the people's perhaps expectations. The people are joyful. The nation has rest from her enemies. And there the temple, the more permanent throne of God, has been established on earth. God's second appearance to Solomon, right, it could have been a dream. We're not told exactly how this happened. But this second appearance may function as a second witness, as one author said, a Deuteronomy, if you will. Again, there isn't any new information. Was this God's way of further reinforcing to Solomon the truthfulness of the promises that he had given to Solomon And if by any reason he happened to abandon the way of the Lord, the path of obedience, he would really have no good excuse or reason for doing so. He could never say if he stopped being obedient to God, he could never say, Lord, you just weren't clear enough. Joshua 24 is very similar, isn't it? As Joshua says, right, choose you this day to the covenant people who you're going to serve. Are you going to go back to those idols that maybe our forefathers used to worship, or are you going to serve the Lord? The next question in verses 4 and 5, what did God say here about obedience? Again, building the temple was very important, right? It was a great work that Solomon was able to accomplish by the grace of God in his lifetime, but that building alone, that accomplishment It didn't guarantee Solomon's spiritual success for the rest of his life, did it? Solomon still has an obligation to love and obey the Lord. And often, love and obey are just synonyms in the Bible, aren't they? To love God is to obey God, and to obey God is to love Him. Okay, in verses 4 and 5, what do we read here? And as for you... If you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, verse 5, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. I mean, didn't 
David say this to Solomon just before Solomon became king in chapter 2 of Kings? God appeared in chapter 3 and says the same thing to Solomon again. Again, there's no new information here. God is simply reconfirming what he already told Solomon and David his father and Joshua that generation. Solomon's father, King David, loved the Lord. He was far from perfect, but he loved the Lord and he repented. And that's the same answer for all of us when we fail to love the Lord, when we're disobedient. We too have the grace of repentance, right? We can love the Lord again. Even after his death, David is characterized in Scripture as a king whose heart was after God. David is characterized as a king. In spite of his sin, he he lived in obedience to God. And again, we can't get away from the conditional language, right? Verse 4 begins if. Verse 5 begins then. Yes, this is about covenant commitment, isn't it? This is perhaps at least the fourth time in the book of Kings, whether it comes from David's mouth or from the revelation of God, that Solomon is reminded that he needs to live in obedience to the covenant. How many choices are there, by the way, when it comes to are you going to serve God or not? It's not that, I mean, God has made it so simple, you either are going to serve God or you're not going to serve God, right? It's really easy. I mean, it's easy for us to understand, But that conditional language that God made clear long before Solomon was born was spoken to David in the great promise. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God says, when he goes wrong, right, speaking about the the king that will sit on the throne, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. So it's right, it's really clear here, it's so simple, Solomon needs to continue living in obedience until the day that he dies. He is a son of David after all, and of all people in Israel, the king does have a unique responsibility, right, to obey God. His disobedience could spill over and wreak havoc upon the nation. This kind of obedience to God is the result of God's divine grace, right? It is accompanied by an inward heart, a desire to love and serve God. And so even though we read early in Kings that God had established Solomon's throne, right? We read again, God is reinforcing it. If you continue to walk before me, then I will establish you. Keep walking in the truth, Solomon. Our next question, what did God say about disobedience in verses 6 through 9? And this strikes me as a warning. Verse 6 begins, and this is a really serious statement from God. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes then I have, that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight." And Israel would become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus thus, to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and and laid hold of on other gods and worship them and serve them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. 
Again, is there anything new here that God says to Solomon? There isn't really anything new, is there? It's just the same things revealed many decades earlier, and it's just being repeated for the sake of emphasis. And notice here that the disobedience is almost equated with falling into idolatry, isn't it? It's almost equated, I guess it is at some points, with turning away from God. I mean, that there's nothing neutral about disobeying God, is there? That's true for Solomon, and it's also true for us. Disobedience is dangerous, it's deadly, it can have disastrous consequences on my life and on the lives of other people. Again, the description of disobedience in verses 6 through 9, right, it is clearly a breaking of God's commandments, right, specifically under the Mosaic law that Solomon was under, it is a breaking of that covenant. And there were specific penalties that were announced ahead of time that if I break these, this covenant, God will, he will punish us. That too is an act of justice, God's revelation to King Solomon about disobedience, right, it's really more of a warning than it is new revelation. Moses said basically the same thing in his day. And again, to reinforce the nature of covenant commitment, that was essential. And yet too often in the Old Testament, we read of covenant failure, don't we? We read of very difficult circumstances where people, they don't follow God. They just don't persevere. What were the two threats that God mentioned in those verses that he would do? He would exile the nation and the temple, right? It could be destroyed. I will cast it out. I will evict the people from the land. That's the first one. And I will cast the temple out of my sight. In the language of verse 7, I will cut off Israel from the land is probably a, a word play, a pun on the word covenant, because the word covenant literally means to cut. Exile is terrible, but it had already happened before this, didn't, hasn't it? The first exile happened when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden. They were exiled to the east, theologically symbolic of being thrown out of God's presence. And the same thing could happen again. God would, he, he will eventually, right, cast them out of his land to the east. A terrible sign of the covenant curse. If the king and the nation turn their back against the Lord and they go after other gods, the consequences will be severe. Max Anders has a good reminder for the context of uh, the audience of kings. I mean, who is this book written to? I, I don't know who wrote it, by the way. I don't know the human author. He says one of the reasons the book of 1 Kings was written was to answer the question for the Jews living in exile in Babylon, how do we get here? He says it's like this, the book of Kings is a, it's a, in a nutshell, it's the history of the nation. Oh, that's how we got here. You know that the words that God spoke to Solomon long ago, that would have hit them perhaps with tremendous force. As he began to learn and remember that Solomon didn't continue uh, for however long, he didn't follow the Lord all of the days of his life. And we're in exile because of him and a whole lot of other people that lived before us. This would lead to 
lamentation because the temple would be destroyed and the nation would endure deep national disgrace. And the name Israel would be a byword, something that people would mock. Can you believe what has happened to these people, to this nation? We come to our second thought this evening, and this is the more difficult part. Everything in verses 1 through 9 is pretty clear. But as we begin to evaluate Solomon's life at this later stage in his reign, I I mentioned earlier that Solomon doesn't really need more new discernment. He simply needs to continue practicing the discernment that God has already given to him. And this this passage is really, from 10 to 28, is almost like work out your salvation passage from Philippians. Our first question, did Solomon follow God's instructions? Well, it depends on who you ask. And I mean that in all seriousness. Commentators are divided at this point, and both sides make some really good points. It's difficult to know with certainty. I mean, what is Solomon's spiritual health, his condition, at this point in his life? He's in at least his 24th year as king, and on the surface, things look really well, don't they? It looks to me as if everything could be described as God's blessing. But as we run through these verses, 10 to 28, there are at least, I don't know, five, six, or seven ideas that are going to be popping, examples are going to pop out at us. One of these is going to be his ongoing international relations, his trading with the king of Tyre. Another one is going to be his domestic labor policies, building projects, and Solomon had many of these. There's going to be a brief note about the king of Egypt, something that he does in relation to Solomon taking this Egyptian princess to be his wife. We are no, we are given information here that Solomon continues to increase in wealth, especially gold. Every time it's mentioned in Kings, he just keeps getting richer. And there's an example of that, right, in verse uh, 13 and then later in the chapter. We have something that seems to be quite positive, a description of Solomon leading Israel in the, the three annual feast and worship. And that, that all sounds great. And then a, a concluding note about the Israelite ships, this navy that was involved in some type of cooperative sea trade venture with the king of Tyre. Our first set of verses in the first description is found in verses 10 through 14. And it describes the relationship that King Solomon had with the Gentile king over there, Hiram or Hiram of Tyre. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, As much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Again, there, there are a few questions that may start popping up in your mind when we, when we read those verses. Let's begin with one question, and here it is. What was King Solomon doing by giving cities within Israel to a Gentile king? Yeah, that, I mean, that's just like, that's, I don't know about that. God gave the land to Israel, right? 
that is what the Bible teaches. And God said the title deed, right? This is my land, but I'm going to give it to Israel. Upon what authority does Solomon have to give this land uh, away to a Gentile king? Now, maybe he's thinking to himself, well, he's a believer. I don't know uh, if we could even demonstrate that. These cities were located close to where the king ruled. Something that we need to consider here is that King Hiram, this is not an equal partnership. He is the Hiram is the junior partner and Solomon is the stronger partner in this trade treaty. And Hiram is not happy because these cities are what? They're worthless. This is like you don't want this real estate if you was if if you would give it. It's mostly worthless land. In fact, the land of Kabul, some have translated that. This is worthless, good for, I mean, you can't even use it for farmland. What is Solomon thinking? I mean, there is no doubt that Solomon benefited greatly. He is a far greater benefactor in this partnership. High-quality lumber of different kinds, not just one. And now we are hearing about gold that apparently Hiram had got for Solomon. And so we recognize, at least I do, that they're not equal partners. Solomon is a stronger partner, and if Hiram doesn't like it, there's not much he can do about it. It's just a, that's the reality. He was not pleased with Solomon. And yet we also recognize that Hiram and his nation, his kingdom, they were prospering as, pro- as Solomon prospered. Solomon was prospering more, but he too was also prospering in this. And there were other things that he would have no doubt been pleased with. Another question that we could ask ourselves, and there are two different answers or ways to answer this, was Solomon taking advantage of this relationship? I mean, what do you think? I love reading a lot of what Dale Ralph Davis writes. He's a, he's a wonderful conservative Christian commentator, and he, he says this is really all pretty positive. He doesn't say, by the way, that anything about the, the land that was given away, which I found interesting. He kind of skipped over that. But he just says, this is all God's blessing. God, from the beginning, said, I'm going to shower you with all these blessings. And this is just another example of that. And he views, really, the entire chapter as still a positive uh, description, evaluation of where Solomon is, even spiritually. And, and he may be right. To be fair, yes, there are many positive statements in these verses. And I find myself split on the issue. Another negative assessment from Bruce Waltke would go something like this. It's quite negative about Solomon at this point. He says, the theme of Solomon's glory is now picked up and it's converted into foolishness. He says, Solomon does not deal fairly with Hiram. His failure in his devotion to the Lord, right, it's transformed now into folly in his relationship with Hiram. He, he points out that back in chapter 4, there was an abundance of food. Remember when we talked about that? And now in chapter 9, there is an abundance of luxury goods, and he thinks that Solomon is using all of this wealth entirely, and he's become self-indulgent. I don't know which one of these is true at this point. We know by the time we come to chapter 11, which is not that far away, we know what the answer is going to be then, but I don't know what it is now. Right? It's, it's probably difficult for us to, to see this in the lives of other people, sometimes even in ourselves. 
when we stop obeying God in maybe certain areas of our life and, and we see what could happen, right, in the life of Solomon. So I cannot say with certainty which one is right. I kind of have a hunch that I have a little bit more of a negative view, but I, I also want to give Solomon credit for the things that he did that glorified God. I mean, if, if anything, we could say that Solomon did a lot more than any of us in the way that God used him. This is why many commentators and even pastors have pointed out a simple principle, right? Even if we don't know what is going on exactly at this point in Solomon's life, we can ask ourselves and apply something to us. No matter how spectacular, right, our past spiritual successes, blessings that God has allowed us to enjoy, right? There is a fundamental spiritual principle that always applies to obedience, there will never come a point in our lives on earth when we can say, I don't have to be obedient to you anymore, Lord, because I did my 20 years and I retired. And I'm now on my pension. We can't do that, can we? I mean, I think the older we see Christians grow and they are still serving the Lord with, you know, cheerfulness, that should still strike us as a great blessing. In verses 15 through 24, we read about a domestic matter that it does involve some labor issues. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo, or the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. And then there's a parenthetical mark in verse 16. Pharaoh king of Egypt had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer. And then another towns are listed, and lo, Beth Horon, and Baalath, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had in the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But to the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the the Milo or the Milo. Maybe that was some kind of a terrace connected to her palace. I don't know what that is. In verse 24, this is at least the second or third time in the book of Kings that we hear something about this Egyptian princess wife of Solomon. That statement that we just read kind of draws together the two previous statements from chapter 3, verse 1, and 7, verse 8. This, this, this wife of Solomon, this, this Egyptian princess, lived somewhere else in the city of David until her house was done, and then uh, she moved into her palace, which was separate from the palace that Solomon lived in. Now, Eugene Merrill makes a very good point here in his very helpful book, Kingdom of Priests, and he says this, the Egyptians were not used to 
giving their daughters away to foreign kings. That is not something the Egyptians used to do. Right? They, are, they, they, they were a superpower of their day. And this tells us that the Egyptians were politically very weak at this time because this is not a normal custom of the Egyptian king to give his daughter to another foreign king. It's alarming if you're from Egypt, but this was a political marriage alliance. And it tells us how strong Solomon and the nation of Israel they were at this time compared to the weakness of Egypt. Now, in the parallel account in Second Chronicles 8.11, we read something that is also even more alarming. Solomon says that, he could not, that she could not live in David's palace. Why was that? Because the places, because the, the places of the ark of the Lord had entered are holy. I think I have a, a typo there, but do you see the connection there? If, he, if she lives in the palace of the king of Israel, she's too close to the holy precincts of the Ark of the Covenant. Now that seems really odd, isn't it? That Solomon would have such concern for that kind of purity. It almost becomes ironic in a few, a few more chapters. Paul House has another observation here. And when we talk about the foreign-born wife, we're, not talking, we're talking about an unbeliever, someone who was not part of God's people. He points out that the maintenance of this foreign-born wife required special consideration. She becomes a financial burden on the nation. They have to pay for it. Pharaoh's daughter worships different gods, Second Chronicles 8.11. It's the parallel text. She doesn't worship the God of the Israelites. And so far, she is the only non-Israelite royal wife that is mentioned in, in the problems, as we know, in chapter 11, they are only going to multiply and the implications are going to be disastrous for Solomon. And it's this, at this point, Peter Lathar gives a very keen observation, something that you may have picked up, a few of you, when we read those verses about what Pharaoh did to the city of Gazar. I mean, the, the Canaanites were, were occupying that, weren't they? And Lathart's going to make this observation. He says, the Pharaoh of Egypt is actually acting like an Israelite king and, and, and King Solomon is acting like a Pharaoh. That's a fascinating thought. In Judges one twenty nine, Gezer or Gezer is singled out as a city that the people of Israel could not conquer or did not conquer. And here we have a... Egyptian king that is performing the fulfillment of holy war obligations, something that God gave to Joshua, and by extension, Solomon still has that obligation, and he burns a city down and gives it as a gift. Do you find that a little bit ironic? Pharaoh seems to be acting more like Yahweh than Solomon. In fact, the parallels of the Lord bringing Israel out of Egypt and what Egypt, what, what, the, what the Pharaoh does here, they're kind of parallel in terms of military formation and the gift given of land. It's really odd. Why was Israel not able to put these Canaanites under the ban? They were clearly told to do that. That's a very serious, right? That's something that was focused primarily upon the Canaanite peoples. And again, a question that I have for all of us, Upon what basis does Solomon have to get the great economic idea to use the Canaanites as his servants? 
Solomon is not following God's revelation in my understanding at this point. And so Lathart says, Pharaoh proves more of an Israelite than Israel, a more diligent son of Yahweh than his son-in-law, Solomon. And then he goes on to say that Solomon, all of his activities of building his fortified cities, that's what the Pharaoh did in Egypt back when, when he read about the Exodus. It's really ironic. Yes, it's a harsh critique of Solomon. And whether you agree or disagree with that, that, that does give us pause to stop and think about those actions between the king of Egypt and the king of Israel. Finally, we come to something that's very positive in verse 25. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. I mean, that right? Solomon appears to be still orthodox in his beliefs. He is still faithful in his worship. He is still leading the people of God at these critical times of the year. And then we conclude in verses 26 and following. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth on the shores, shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, now 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. The gold just keeps coming, and we'll learn later there are a lot of other things that he's bringing back in these ships. The economic expansion and the profits are just continuing to grow. Hiram's men knew how to travel the sea more than the Israelite people, and they brought back all kinds of treasures and delights for Solomon to, to enjoy. And, and perhaps even part of the nation enjoyed some of these things. Some of these ships, we believe, went to parts of Africa, perhaps even to India, Turkey, and even Greece. And yes, we can say that Solomon did accomplish some wonderful, some great things for the Lord. We should acknowledge all of those successes and not take any of them away. And there at worship, again, that statement in mentioned verse 25, Solomon was leading the worship of God's people at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacle. And it all sounds very good, doesn't it? I wonder at what point Solomon has a mixture of obeying the Lord and also disobeying the Lord. Probably a lot like us at times, isn't he? Riken says the trouble is that Solomon did not finish nearly as well as he started. We know that, don't we? We're going to encounter that in chapter 11. Riken goes so far as to say that the if at the beginning of verse 6 turned out to be a when. Solomon did not stay on the right road, did he? For all of the glory and splendor that God had bestowed upon him. Solomon comes to a point in his life when he stops following the true God. He didn't listen to the warning about disobedience. And this was a lesson that Israel had to learn the hard way too. That's why Joshua said what he said before he died. He challenged the people of God in his day. Choose wisely. They said in verse 18 of Joshua 24, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. Riken then states Joshua's warning turned out to be the story of Solomon's life. Our next question, how was Jesus similar but different from Solomon? Well, he's similar in that Solomon was a king and Jesus is the king. Solomon served temporarily, Jesus permanently. They were both sons of David. Both 
Solomon and Jesus expressed their desire to follow God, to follow the Father's will. But the differences are are greater, aren't they? Although Solomon began with a heart to do God's will, he fell away. I don't know for how long, if it was a long time. uh, There's debate about that, but we, we all know that he fell away for a period of time. But Jesus always expressed this strong, perfect desire to do the will of his Father. No matter what, Jesus came to do the mission his Father gave him to accomplish, and Jesus accomplished it. We see this desire in the Lord Jesus at many points in his ministry from beginning to end. Jesus' covenant commitment never wavers. We never have to wonder, was Jesus, what were his motives there? Because Jesus is always faithful. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus never abused any personal relationship. He never tried to enrich himself with silver or gold. Reichen points out, praise God that we have a Savior who always made the right choice in life, following the lonely road all the way to the cross. Solomon won't do that. Solomon wasn't asked to do that, was he? Jesus was faced with the confrontation of making choices every day of his public ministry life. There were always two roads before him, just like Solomon. As a little boy, he learned obedience. And we know that he was attacked by the devil in that wilderness testing. Jesus had no food except the food to do the will of his Father. That is staggering. It is amazing. We are thankful for that. And even when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see his covenant commitment. It's still there as he prays to the Father, even though there's that statement, is there any other way? Jesus obeyed the will of his Father. He chose for God every moment of every day of his entire life. And it cost him his life, didn't it? Because Jesus is the only person who ever did choose for God all the time, every time. He was able to make perfect atonement for our sins. Because of Jesus' covenant commitment in every area of his earthly life, In all that he did for our salvation, he is the road to God. Jesus is the way to eternal life. You know, I've wondered, will will Jesus be the only one that has scars in heaven? Those are scars of obedience. Our scars may all heal, but Jesus' scars, they may never heal for a visible witness to us. And then our last application, are you seeking to live in obedience to Jesus Christ? Our our obedience here is gospel obedience, isn't it? It's based upon what Jesus Christ first has done for us. It is based upon the grace of God. We are not doing this at our own power. I guess the first application, all of us could just stop and think, what would we do, how would we respond if God appeared to us and said the same thing to us as he said to Solomon, right? We're not Davidic kings, but what if he said something similar, Can all of us pray the words that end in Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I suspect all of us here tonight can pray that prayer. 99% of us at least. We can pray that prayer and it's a prayer of of a desire to be obedient to God even though when when we know there's sin in our life. Lord, help us. If we can pray that prayer, that's a good indicator that we would respond, right? And that we will respond in obedience. 
Another implication that I won't deal with tonight, but it could be this. If your spouse is an unbeliever, as Solomon apparently has an unbelieving spouse, how do you interact with that unbelieving spouse? But since Pastor Dan is addressing that in the morning services, we'll just let that think about that. Another application is connected to Solomon's relationship with Hiram. Yeah, he was disappointed and he, he felt like he, he had the short end of the stick on that one. These towns are worthless. What are you doing? I've worked for you and you give me this? Stop, stop and think about the relationships and the people that you are involved with in your life. Are your relationships with other people honoring to God or not? Is my relationship with my spouse glorifying to God or not? Or with my family members? Am I taking advantage of another human being that I'm in relationship with? Maybe I just want to sell something on eBay and I'm just going to sell it and not tell the truth. Am I taking advantage of someone even if I don't know them just to make a buck or a business deal? Whatever it is, do I take advantage of people in the church? Those are God's people. Another application for us to think about, am I obeying the commands of God with a whole heart or a partial heart? That seems to be a problem that Solomon will have, and I suspect all of us have problems in that in our own lives. I ask this because of the controversy about the cities that not only he gave away, but also how he dealt with the Canaanites. There's a lot of questions that arise in our minds. Maybe to make that more personal, am I not taking any of God's commandments serious in a way that God would want me to take as serious? Should I be joyful in my commands? This morning we talked about coveting in our Sunday school class, and that has a lot of application for us, doesn't it? And so I'll conclude by mentioning, may God help us in all of these areas to seek first His kingdom and the things that matter to God in our lives. And may God continue to help us in this area of gospel obedience. He does help us, doesn't he? I'll leave you with two verses before I close in prayer. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. In 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Father, we thank you for this chapter in the book of Kings. And Lord, we pray and praise you for the perfect covenant commitment that Jesus showed to his Father so that we could be saved. Lord, we pray that on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation given to us, Lord, the forgiveness you have granted to us, we pray that you would help us this week to have a heart and a life that strives to obey you and to serve you. Lord, we are thankful that we can come to you and ask for forgiveness when we don't follow your commands wholeheartedly or when we take advantage of other people in our relationships. Lord, we know that this does not honor you and it does not illustrate how we are to love our neighbor. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to make more progress in our faith this week. We thank you for the gospel hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this week, and we ask this in his name. Amen.